say thanks to the band. Really appreciate you guys. That new song was sweet. Well done. Thank you. So uh, this is that this is that time of the semester where you guys start feeling the heat a little bit, huh? Yes. Yes. Many seconds to that. I was talking to one of you this evening, and uh, he was telling me about this class he had that was really tough. And he was like, yeah, it's like a business class, but there's a lot of math. And I was like, K201? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And uh, it just cracks me up, because I feel like over the past three years, I've gotten to know a lot of you and hear your stories. And there's some common classes that are just like rough for a lot of people. I feel like K201 is one of those, and finite math. Um, I hear a lot of like horror stories about finite math. Um, it seems like some people like that class so much they take it like three times. Um, I probably would have fit that demographic myself if I went to IU as an undergrad. Um, I have to tell you, so I have this recurring nightmare of like twice a year. I'm not, I'm not kidding at all. About twice a year I have this dream that I am in college and I have one more math or science class left before I can graduate, which are like the worst nightmare for me. I literally counted down math and science classes. That was like my barometer of where I was at in school. I was like, I've got two more maths and then I'm done. In reality, I still had another year when I finished them, but I knew if I could get through those math classes, then there was hope. Um, and so, uh, like twice a year, I get this nightmare that I'm in a math or science class that I have to pass before I can graduate, and there's just no way it's gonna happen. And I am just, like, I will wake up sweaty and like distraught, and I will have to remind myself, no, you graduated from college, like six years ago. And, uh, you know, like, I'm just so relieved that I don't have to take any more math and science classes. Like, God is good, right? Um, but I have to tell you, like, what a nightmare that would be for me if that dream was a reality. Uh, I don't know if you guys pay attention to those emails we send out other than what's for dinner, evidently, Emily. Um, but my sermon title for this week is A Dream Comes True in a Bad Way. Um, I love those sarcastic titles. Sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts. It's probably not a good part of my spirit, but um, you got to embrace who you are, right? So this dream that I'm going to share tonight is a story from the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel has some crazy stories. And it's kind of funny. We can read through the stories in scripture and just be like, oh yeah, like they threw these three guys in the fire and then they just walked out. And it's like, no, like this is a historical story. Like these events actually occurred. This is craziness. These men were thrown in a fire, but they walked out alive. Uh, the story we're going to read tonight is absolutely crazy too, and the story that we're going to read in three weeks after our marriage panel about this man being thrown in a den with hungry lions and coming out alive um, is crazy as well. But I think that we need to remember, these are historical events that actually took place, and tonight is just like, um, it's like a fiction novel that you would read what goes on. And so um, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Daniel 4. And you can follow along. I'm going to tell the story and read some of the scripture as we go through it. It would be a, just a long passage to read all of it. And I want to set the stage a little bit. So in the book of Daniel, we've followed the story of these Israelites who've been exiled to the land of Babylon after their king Nebuchadnezzar led his army against Israel and conquered that nation. And so the elite of the elite are now in Babylon. Daniel and his buddies, and they've been conscripted into the king's service 
um, serving in his court uh, as Daniel and then his friends are part of Nebuchadnezzar's administration throughout the province. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he's a pagan king, this is a pagan nation, they worship many gods, but Nebuchadnezzar has been able to get a glimpse of the uniqueness of the God of Israel through these Jewish people living in the land and God being faithful to them, being present with them in the midst of their exile. Um, this time where God would renew them and restore them as a people as they experienced some really difficult things, some judgment for them straying away from him. They would be restored to him, they would turn back to him as a result of going through this difficult time. And so they've seen that God is powerful. Um, Daniel himself has been given a gift to interpret dreams, and he interpreted a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And that really gave Nebuchadnezzar this idea that the God of Israel is this keeper of mysteries. He's able to tell the times. And uh, next after that, we read a story of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, who were bound up and thrown in this furnace uh, that would have just been insanely hot. No way they're walking out of here alive. But this son of the gods, as Nebuchadnezzar called him, came into the furnace and untied their bounds. Um, and they walked out and they were able to provide this testimony to the king um, by being people of faith who followed him even to the furnace. They wouldn't bow down and worship this god that Nebuchadnezzar could set up. And so this showed Nebuchadnezzar that this god was not just able to interpret dreams, but he was a god who was powerful. He was a God who could perform miracles. It was a miracle that these men walked out of the fire tonight. And so the story that uh, we're reading tonight takes place in this context where Nebuchadnezzar knows some truths about God that he has seen, that he's witnessed, but he's by no means a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Um, although he has made Judaism a governmentally protected religion in his land. And so what we're going to read tonight takes place Several years after this story of the fiery furnace, uh, Daniel has kind of progressed in age, and um, we're at a point in time where Nebuchadnezzar was nearing the end of his reign, which lasted about 43 years, so he would have been nearing the end of his life, and this would have been a wildly successful rule that Nebuchadnezzar had. Um, he's actually still kind of famous for some of his building projects. And I want to read just a little bit about some of those to you guys now so you can get an idea of how big of a deal Nebuchadnezzar's kingship was and the security that he brought to the land of Babylon. So um, stick with me here. This is just a quick excerpt, excerpt from some history about the land of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar transformed Babylon into perhaps the most magnificent capital in antiquity. The ruins of that city south of Baghdad in modern Iraq encompassed approximately 2,100 acres. Excavations have revealed that the glory of the city constructed by Nebuchadnezzar and that of its fortification system were around 1,140 acres and built up along both sides of the Euphrates River. This was surrounded by a wall 5.5 miles long, incorporating an inner wall 21 feet wide and an outer wall 12 feet wide, with a 24-foot square space between them filled with earth. This resulted in a total defense depth of 57 feet. That's a thick wall. Um, outside the outer wall was a moat, 60 to 250 feet wide, fed by the Euphrates River. To the east of the inner city were two more double walls, totaling 4.5 miles in length. To provide additional protection against invasion from the north, Nebuchadnezzar constructed an enormous wall 20 miles from Babylon. It was 16 feet thick and extended from the Euphrates to the Tigris River 
a distance of approximately 25 miles. Within the city, Nebuchadnezzar's magnificent palace occupied 50 acres. Along this were over 50 temples, as well as numerous shrines and other buildings. So Nebuchadnezzar has pretty much constructed this massive fortress around his kingdom. This is a very safe place uh, to live. Um, by these walls that he's constructed and the natural borders that he used to his own advantage. And so Nebuchadnezzar had really constructed an amazing kingdom. This would have been a secure place to live. He was a king who was clearly in control, and he'd really made his mark on the world um, that he knew. And so tonight's story um, takes place in this context. So here, we will, here we'll pick up in uh, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 4, and you can follow along with me here. This is uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's words. He says, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. So, like I shared, when I have bad dreams, usually the way it works is I wake up my wife and I'm like, Brittany, listen to this dream. And she's like, that's weird. And she goes back to bed. I don't really get any help interpreting them. But um, evidently, Nebuchadnezzar is a man with resources. This guy has a bad dream. And it seems that this one must have been extraordinarily troublesome. Um, he calls in his dream team, we'll call them, these magicians. Uh, <laughs> I was so pumped to share that <laughs> So he calls in his magicians, his enchanters, his astrologers, his diviners in the middle of the night to help him figure it out. And he tells them the dream, but none of them can interpret it. They either don't understand the meaning of this dream or they're understanding it, but too afraid of the consequences to let him know what it means. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar gets no answer. Maybe these guys were afraid he'd shoot the messenger if they told him that the dream actually was bringing bad news. Um, so these guys, are, these guys are no help. But then this last member of the team trickles into the room just a little bit late. I kind of imagine him like stumbling in, rubbing his eyes because some royal servant has just woke him up to come interpret the king's dream. And uh, he turns the corner and it's Daniel, the hero, the hero of our story. Daniel, um, it would have been, he probably would have been about 50 years old. And this would have been numerous years after he had interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar before. But Nebuchadnezzar surely would have been glad to see him. Um, the way he greets him is pretty amazing. Uh, Daniel had interpreted this dream for him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, when Daniel walks into the room, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And no mystery is difficult for it's too difficult for you. He says, here's my dream. Interpret it for me. So no pressure, right? Um, the king says, here's my dream. Interpret it for me. I'm sure we could all do that. Uh, let me read this dream for you. Keep in mind, these are the dreams that the most powerful, um, one of the most powerful men in the ancient world had. But when we read this, like 2,500 years removed, it's like, wow, this is a crazy dream. Like, why don't we have dreams about math classes? Like, normal people. <laughs> um, here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. I don't think I'm normal. He says, These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked in there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it 
The beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Here's where it gets really crazy. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. So I told you that was a crazy dream. It's probably more crazy than you anticipated. And so... Daniel heard this dream, and the text says that he was mystified by it. Um, he had an idea of what it meant, but it mentions that those thoughts terrified him. Um, so maybe he felt hesitant, like the other members of the dream team may have felt, to share the meaning of the dream with the king, because uh, Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't be particularly pleased to understand it. Uh, maybe Daniel was terrified because he was afraid that Nebuchadnezzar would respond to it poorly, or maybe that he wouldn't be able to respond to it. Uh, for whatever reason, Daniel's nervous to share its meaning, but Nebuchadnezzar tells him, don't be alarmed, just tell me what it means. Uh, he wants the news, no matter how tough it would be. And so let's read Daniel's interpretation. We're picking up in verse 20. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heavens. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kings of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Heaven rules. <laughs> um, and so now that Nebuchadnezzar knows what his dream means, do you think he had an easy time falling back asleep? Um, Seven periods of time as a wild animal sounds like a serious consequence if he failed to change his ways, right? Um, I was trying to figure out how long this would have been, but the Aramaic word here used to mean periods of time uh, is an indefinite word. It's idanim. Um, it doesn't indicate how long these periods of time were. And so seven periods of time likely described, you know, seven years or seven weeks. Um, either way, it was a long time. And... I have to say, forever, 
Um, for how much this dream is intimidating to hear, I also think it was really generous of God to give Nebuchadnezzar this dream because it's a warning of what will happen if he stays on the path he's on. Um, better for him to know this harsh prophecy and have the opportunity to change and correct course uh, than to have no idea what consequences were ahead of him if he just kept going the way he was. And so Daniel encourages him to take this dream seriously. He says to him in verse 27, Your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. So Nebuchadnezzar, uh, this powerful king, has a choice to make. Is he going to keep on this path of arrogance and self-centeredness, believing him to be the sovereign over all of life in his kingdom, or is he going to do this complete 180 and become someone who's kind to the oppressed, someone who keeps in mind his position under the God of Israel? Um, How is Nebuchadnezzar going to respond? Let's, uh, let's move into Act 2 and see how things work out for him. So let's pick up in verse 28. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal pal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built, as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Uh, Take a quick pause here. This comment is some pretty good evidence that Nebuchadnezzar didn't make the choice to acknowledge that God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to whoever he wishes, right? Uh, he did not take the warning in his dream. Or maybe he did have a change of heart after the dream, but it just didn't last. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar failed to heed the warning. He's about to receive the consequences. So, verse 31 the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Um, this is crazy stuff, huh? One of the most powerful and successful kings in the ancient Near East has basically just morphed into a wild animal. Uh, what a great subject for a teen fiction series, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Animorphs? Connor knows what I'm talking about. You guys remember those books? I know you do. Uh, totally based on the book of Daniel. So, hair-like feathers, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we call those dreadlocks. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't trim his fingernails. This guy who ruled a powerful nation, developed cities, had status, control, wealth uh, beyond any of us, beyond what any of us will ever know, is running around the wilderness like a solitary cow. He's eating grass. He's all by himself. He's totally unkempt. He's uncivilized. And this divinely ordained psychotic break of sorts. Um, this is absolute craziness. He's living like a cow. This is the king of the most powerful nation in this region. Um, and God told Nebuchadnezzar in his dream this would last for a period, um, for seven periods of time. Uh, 
I'm sure that was a long enough period of time for King Nebuchadnezzar to get the lesson. Let's pick up and see how the story continues. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Um, his sanity was restored. Talk about a humbling experience and a lesson learned the hard way. This is just an incredible story, but it shouldn't be that surprising to us, really, the way it turned out. I mean, God just did what he, was, what he said he was going to do. Uh, he did it through and through. Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely brought to his knees and humbled. Uh, there, was, there was no way of avoiding his lowly position after this before the Almighty God. He would never be the same after this. It's amazing to me that when God restores Nebuchadnezzar's sanity, his immediate response is to praise God. That's literally his first sane action, to praise God. Let's look at verse 34. After his sanity was restored, then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so these memories of who he'd been before his breakdown, of how he'd lived, where he'd come from, all he'd experienced had to have been on his mind. Um, and to think of what he went through during that period of time, how else could he respond to what he'd gone through just by then just by acknowledging this powerful truth about God's sovereignty over all of the world? Um, how can he respond but to praise God for it? This is the kind of moment where this truth that you can know in your mind becomes a reality. He experienced it. He lived it out. Um, he synthesized it because his knowledge in his head of um, this God who is powerful, this God who is able, had been something that, encount that he'd encountered in his own experience. He'd experienced that God was not just able to perform miracles, but that this God was sovereign over all of life, over all of creation, for all of eternity. He'd seen this to be true. He'd lived it out. Um, and so in this plight that we see Nebuchadnezzar go through, and then his restoration, it moved him to see this truth that God, um, he, it moved him to see this truth that was in front of him right all along. Um, but he'd been totally blind to it as a result of his pride. And so in this story, God brought him low that Nebuchadnezzar's eyes might ultimately be open to accept this truth and to live in light of it. As the text says, the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to whoever he wishes. And so, interestingly enough, as he was promised in his dream after this, God allows Nebuchadnezzar to prosper. Um, verse 36. At the time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. And so God brought him back into community. He renewed his position of authority, of authority which is really amazing. Um, if the king's not on the throne for a period of time, you would think that someone else would have assumed it or overthrown his rule, but that wasn't the case. Uh, God restored him as king. God allowed him to become even greater than before. But most importantly, 
through this experience, God changed his heart uh, through this time of judgment, uh, this consequence for his errors, his unfaithfulness to accepting the truth of who God was. Um, he was brought low. He was forced to recognize the truth that he was not the king over all of creation, that God was. Uh, this is a totally different man. Let's read the end of this chapter here, verse 37. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So this is just a radically different person from whom we encountered at the beginning of the chapter. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have been impacted by understanding and experiencing this truth about God and lived the way he did before. His arrogance would have been replaced with an appropriate understanding of his role in the world. Uh, his self-centered life would have been forced. Um, he would have been forced to acknowledge the needs of others. The people of Babylon, I imagine, must have enjoyed his rule a heck of a lot more after this event, and certainly the oppressed living among them, who he now cared for, would have enjoyed his rule a lot more. And uh, I don't know if, if this crosses your mind, but when I read this story, there's a part of me that can't help but wonder if this is a story of Nebuchadnezzar coming to saving faith in the God of Israel. I really wonder about that, and I, I really don't think the text is entirely clear on this. It's possible that Nebuchadnezzar, um, in view of the titles that he used in describing God and his words of praise that come along with them, that he has come to save in faith, but we just don't see that in this text. Uh, we don't see that it led him to turn away from the other gods he worshipped and to worshipping this God of Israel exclusively. And the rest of the book of Daniel from here on out is about other pagan kings that followed Nebuchadnezzar, so we don't really get to see the end of his story. Um, who knows? Maybe he did come to saving faith here. I think only God knows for sure. But one thing is sure, regardless of what exactly happened, um, it is clear in this story that Nebuchadnezzar moved from thinking himself to, be the, to being the sovereign over his life and the people he led to recognizing the truth that the God of Israel was sovereign over all. And so this is just an amazing display of God's power in an absolutely crazy story that we read here. The Most High God is supremely in control over all people and times and events. Um, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would have seen this clearly. Um, God is a really effective witness to his own character, huh? He would have shown that he was sovereign over all. And what an encouragement this event would have been to the people of Israel who were living in the land of Babylon, right? God still is in charge. No one can hold back his hand. No doubt about it. Look at what they've seen. Um, and so as we kind of consider together what this story um, means for our lives today, in beginning to think about that question, I want to draw your attention to a dynamic that I'm sure you all have experienced in life. Um, I hope this isn't a new dynamic to you. And it's this, that as we kind of move away from living under our parents' roofs and we mature through time and experiences, um, ideally that's how it works out, right? Um, as we mature over time and through experiences, we grow in our capacity to be responsible for ourselves, right? We no longer expect people to make life happen for us. And this is a really good thing. 
Um, if this didn't happen, we'd all still be at home with mom and packing our lunches and pulling our clothes out for us. Um, now my wife packs my lunches and pulls my clothes out. <laughs> Only on Sundays. Just kidding. But serious. Um, we no longer expect people to make our lives happen for us. We mature. We take responsibility. Um, and as you continue to mature, you begin to realize that the world is bigger than just you. Um, you begin taking responsibility for others. Um, responsibility in relationship. Taking the initiative to care for others. Doing what's best for them in the way that you live, in the way that you order your life. That's a big part of being a mature adult, right? Um, that's a big part of leadership. Um, these are all really good things. Um, God has created people in his own image, and so we have this ability uh, to treat other people in a way that reflects God's calling on our lives, and the way in which he's given us value, intelligence, creativity, um, this capacity to be people in a relationship, to be people who care. The way that we live is meant to reflect that, and it's a beautiful thing for us as human beings, as individuals and as a community, to live responsibility. Um, to care for others and to conduct ourselves responsibly, but there's this problem that we have. Uh, we lose perspective of the big picture of life, the way that we were designed and the way that it was intended to be lived. Um, because of our sin state, we turn inwards, we turn our focus on ourselves and forget that God is God. Um, we take our responsibility and rather than being stewards of what God has given us and caring for others, um, we hold things tightly in our own hands. Um, we put those burdens on our own shoulders and act like we are responsible for making life happen um, if we want this universe to be maintained. Um, it's our job to do it. Um, we feel this weight, don't we? We can dupe ourselves into thinking we're the kings of creation. We are the sovereigns. Um, we forget the truth of God's sovereignty. This reality can weigh us down in our own lives and in our relationships with others. Um, tonight's story that we read absolutely underscores the danger of this pattern of thinking, um, this pattern that comes to us all too easily. Uh, when we read this story, maybe you're like me, it's so easy to say, Nebuchadnezzar looked like such a fool. He was just ridiculous running around the wilderness acting like a cow, um, which is true. But you know what Nebuchadnezzar would say was even more ridiculous by the end of this story? He would say it was absolutely insane that there was a time he ran around his palace in Babylon acting like he was the king of the world, like he was the sovereign over creation. Um, what a fool I was. Through this experience of judgment, God opened his eyes to the absolute lunacy of this delusion that he was the one in charge that he was in control. That was so wrong. God is the eternal king over all heaven and earth, and his experience opened his eyes to see that that was true. Um, I want to tell you a story. Last week, my wife and I went to the Pacers game, and uh, so we went with her physician assistant school, and they got us block seating, and so we were literally in the absolute highest up row you can get, and uh, maybe you're like, wow, those are terrible seats, but I loved it. I was like, yes, like, if I could pick any seat in the house, other than, like, right behind the bench, then I could, like, throw, like, jelly beans over my shirt. <laughs> um, 
who's the one member of the Pacers whose name I know. Um, <laughs> if I couldn't get that seat, I'd want to be in the top row. And you know why? Because I could see everything. I don't know if there are any other people in here like me, but I love um, this delusion of feeling like if I can see everything that's going on, then I can respond to it. And I have this like semblance of control over what's going on. Like, if anybody does anything, like, I got it covered. Um, if you've gone out to lunch with me, you've probably already picked up on this dynamic, or coffee. I like to sit in booths where I can see a large portion of the room. Um, I know that's really weird, but when my wife goes to dinner, she'll often sit, when we go to dinner together, she'll often sit down and be like, oh, is this a good seat? Like, do you want to switch seats? Because she knows, like, I am this neurotic control freak who thinks that if he can see the room, that if, like, anybody tries to steal an old lady's purse, like, I'm going to chase them down. I don't know why. But uh, this carries over into other areas of my life that are kind of funny. Like, I love to go to the same restaurants. I love to go to the same coffee shops. I like to find what's good and stick to it because I'm like, this works, and it's safe, and I feel like I know what I'm going to get. Um, it's kind of comical in some ways, but this dynamic of wanting control can totally overflow into other areas of my life. I can absolutely exhaust myself planning for the future. Like, I have like five year plans like five times a day. Um, I'm not kidding. And, uh, you know, I can just constantly be thinking about, so what am I going to do next? And, um, totally miss out on the present because I'm so consumed with the future and trying to control, trying to think that it's in my hands. Um, this can totally weigh me down. And I have to tell you, I hope you know me well enough to know that my relationship with God and my faith in Christ is the most important thing in my life. But if I'm being totally honest, this is a constant battle for me not to delude myself into thinking I'm in charge of my life and I am the sovereign over the circumstances around me. Um, I so badly want to be in control. I can dupe myself into thinking that I would be a great guy to be in charge over my own life. Um, what a fool I can be. This is an absolute battle. It's one of the biggest sin issues I struggle with. Um, I can sure demoralize myself with this. I constantly have to turn back in faith to God and trust Him. Uh, trust Him in faith repeatedly. Um, it is hard for me to admit that I'm not in control, but it's the truth. And um, the truth that this world is absolutely out of my control can be scary. Um, this is a reality that is really scary. It's not, it's not on my shoulders. I can't change my circumstances always. Um, I don't know what's best for myself. I don't know what's best for other people. It's a really scary thing. And most people either don't accept the truth that life is out of control, or if they accept it, they just don't think about it that much. Because if you do, and you don't trust God with it, um, this can be really discouraging. It can be really demoralizing. So we either pretend that we are in control, or we just ignore the fact that we're not. Because if we're not, we can't handle that, right? Um, what this passage speaks to us tonight is this reality that we are not in control doesn't have to be a scary one for us. It can actually be one of the most beautiful realities in our lives. Why? Because God, the creator of the whole universe, is responsible for our very lives and all events throughout human history, and God remains active in his creation. He's the God over everything, and he always will be. Um, 
God is not indifferent to us. He cares for his people. He's made a way for us to live. He's made a way for us to live the way he intends life to be lived. And so this rebellion I talked about, our tendency to turn inwards, um, God has met us in the midst of that. He's met us. He's given us the opportunity to know him. He's come to earth and walked amongst us through the person of Jesus Christ who lived the sinless life that we were unable to live, who died the death that we deserve to pay for our sin. Um, he paid that penalty for us to bring us into relationship with himself, that we might know him, that we might be people in relationship with him, that we might be people empowered by his spirit to live lives of faith, to trust him when it's our tendency to constantly turn inwards and look to ourselves. Um, we're not a people without hope. This news, we're not in control. Um, that is news that is good to us. It's music to our ears. It's beautiful truth. We're not in control, but a God who is good, a God who loves us, who knows what's best for us, is in control. We have his favor. This is beautiful. Um, God has made a way for us. Um, this is reality. Do you believe that? Are you going to live according to reality? Or are you going to act like you're the one in control when it's not true? Um, this is um, it's, it's something that we can all grasp with our mind, but it's something that's really hard for us to believe when the heat gets turned up, right? We're all going to go through times where we're going to be so challenged to believe this. Um, isn't it funny how the most simple truths like this can be the ones where if we can actually grasp them and live by them, It'll be absolutely life-changing. Um, I think my level of anxiety just like drops through the floor in a very good way when I actually believe that God is sovereign and that God is in control and take that burden off my own shoulders that I'm all too quick to put on them. Um, we go through times like this, um, times like Nebuchadnezzar experienced, where we are going to be challenged, we're going to be humbled, we're going to be tested, we're going to be stretched. Um, we're going to be uncertain of what is going on. Things are going to feel like they're totally out of our control. And I'm not telling you that um, every time you go through a difficult circumstance that this is what's happening, but I want you to at least be open to the idea that maybe God um, is trying to work in your life to help you realize this reality and something that you're going through. He's able to do that. He's able to use these tough experiences that you go through, these times that stretch you to the limit, um, to impact you with this truth that he's sovereign and he has it under control. Um, this can really hurt. I'm not going to downplay that. Um, and it's not happening because God wants to put you in your place and show you who's boss. Um, it's happening because God loves you and he wants you to experience the peace and the joy that comes from knowing his provision, from knowing that he is wise, that he has ability over every area of your life. And he will work through your experiences to bring that to fruition. Even in those times that are incredibly difficult, God's in control. We can trust him. Um, so to conclude, I want to share two last things in this story that are really cool. Um, the first is this. I just think it's amazing to see the way in which this story shows us that grasping the truth of God's sovereignty over every square inch of life um, this truth necessarily requires us to move outside of ourselves. We can't just say, oh man, like God's sovereign over all of life. Isn't that nice? And then go living in a way that's um, totally self-centered. We just can't do that. 
um, Nebuchadnezzar was called to respond to this truth with action. Repent of your sin by doing what is right. Turn from your wickedness and be kind to the oppressed. God's sovereignty draws us outside of ourselves. It leads us into caring for others. And so the first step in that has to be repentance. We have to turn back to God. Um, whether that's the first time that you do this and recognizing that God's in control and not yourself and opening up your hands and asking him um, to come into your life, giving it over to him and trusting him with your future. You know what? This is something that even when you've come to Christ, you're going to find yourself continually repenting. Um, Martin Luther said it best, all of life is repentance. That's not just a demoralizing quote saying that you're always going to keep screwing it up, so you better keep saying you're sorry over and over and over again. No, he's saying this beautiful truth that God's grace is sufficient for you, and though you may sin, God is going to be faithful to forgive you of it, and he is powerful to move you forward in your ability to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. So when you forget this truth that God is sovereign, turn back to him. And as you do that, turn into his mission instead of inside of yourself. Care for others. Use the gifts he's given you, the opportunities he's given you to make their lives to give them an encounter with the news of Jesus Christ and what he's done and what he's doing to bring about new life in this world. The truth of God's sovereignty draws us outside of ourselves. And so the last part of that application I want to share is that there's another powerful lesson we see here um, about sharing our faith. Um, one powerful way that we can open a door to share our faith is by living out this truth. Um, just live like God is actually in control of your life and not yourself. Um, that is an incredibly powerful witness. Um, most people walk around with these huge burdens. Like, it is their job to make life happen. Like, if I'm not going crazy trying to control every aspect of my existence, like, how is my future going to work out? Like, I've got to do this. If you want to show people your faith, trust God. People will see that there's something different about you. Like, oh my gosh, like how are you not freaking out that you don't have an internship yet this summer? I'm doing my best. God's in control. Whoa. That's crazy. Like, you believe that God is powerful and like active in this world? I do. Let me tell you more. <laughs> believe that God's in control. He will open the doors for you to be able to share more. Um, God is a really effective witness for himself. Um... And so, like I said, don't be demoralized. Don't be depressed when you get this wrong. Um, turn back to God in faith. Know that he's full of grace and able to meet you in the midst of it. God is in control. What beautiful truth this is. Um, I hope that tonight will be a time where you can um, open up your hands and trust that nothing can hold back God's hand. Um, we can't control, and that's okay. God is able. God knows what's best for us. He's fully wise. He's fully powerful. And he is good. You have his favor in Jesus Christ, so trust him. He is faithful. Please pray with me. God, uh, we thank you for the good news of your word. We thank you that um, these words are true. Your dominion has, is eternal. Uh, your kingdom endures from generation to generation. You do as you please the powers of heaven and the powers of earth. Um, nothing can hold back your hand. God, you're fully wise. You are good. Um, oh, it's such a challenge for us not to think that we are responsible for our own lives, that we need to control things, that we need to be the ones um, who make life happen.
happen. God, just give us the faith to trust you. Um, meet us with your grace. Um, we pray that your spirit would just um, work in our lives and allow us to believe this to be true in those moments when we're so tempted to turn inside of ourselves to control things, to just um, burden ourselves with a burden that we were never meant to bear. God, you are good. You are faithful. Um, you are true to your word, and we just praise you for that. We ask that you um, would just continually remind us of this truth, that we would know that you are a God who is sovereign over all. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.